We'll be in Genesis chapter 41, verses 37 through 57. Before we get to our text, uh, what comes to mind when you think of the word fruitful? Maybe you're a gardener and you think of fruitful as a flourishing garden, one that produces a lot of good fruits and vegetables. Maybe when you think of fruitful, you think literally of like a fruit tree (laughs) that is producing good and beautiful fruit. Maybe it's when your work is going well and you feel a great sense of purpose and joy while also providing for the needs of your family and others. Maybe it's family life that is experiencing a good sense of care and fun and enjoyment. Fruitful carries with it a sense of how things are supposed to be. Now think about affliction. Images of difficulty, pain, and sorrow probably come to mind. Maybe even a sense of dread might be even coming over you just hearing that word. To be afflicted with illness or some struggle in your life, like losing or not having a job, a loss of relationship. So many things in life are an affliction. Nothing good comes to mind when we think of the word affliction. And yet our world, our lives tend to be a mixture of both. Because of sin, what we understand in Scripture to be the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, they brought affliction upon humanity and all of creation. But God had made the world good. The creation was good when God formed it and made it and placed Adam and Eve in the garden. It was very good. And so along with our lives the creation still has the ability to produce fruitfulness. And so like Joseph, we find that we can be fruitful in the land of our affliction. Let's read Genesis 41, verses 37 through 57. So Joseph has just given his proposal to Pharaoh on how to handle this famine that is going to come upon the land in seven years or after seven years. We begin our text here. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command." Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, Bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land 
of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphenath Panath, and I'm sure I said that wrong. Um, and he gave him uh, in marriage to Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly, and he gathered up all the food of those seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt, there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph, what he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread all over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt." Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your word who has made flesh in Jesus Christ. Lord, as we come to our text today, Lord, might your word dwell in us richly. Lord, might we see and know that there is fruitfulness in the land of our affliction. And Lord, we pray that you would impress that upon our hearts and minds, that we might live in light of that reality. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we continue our series in the life of Joseph titled The Gospel According to Joseph. And last week we saw that after 13 years of being a slave and then in prison for something that he did not do, Joseph is finally remembered by the chief cupbearer and Pharaoh calls for his release from prison to interpret his dreams that no one else in Egypt was able to interpret. We saw how Joseph gave glory to God and not himself as the source of his wisdom and pointed to God as the one who was more powerful even than Pharaoh. That Joseph understood that the audience of one that he was serving was not Pharaoh, but the Lord. We saw for us that because Jesus is in us and we in him, we can live all of life before an audience of one. And this morning we see Joseph begin his new position as second in command of Egypt, growing into this role, and we learn a little bit about his life over the seven years of plenty. 
Joseph is raised from the pit and given a new position, a new name, a new life, and given unparalleled power. He is given the clothes, the ring of the Pharaoh, which was used as the seal of the Pharaoh's declarative word and the position of Pharaoh in the eyes of everyone, except only Pharaoh would be greater. Everyone all, in all the land except Pharaoh would bow their knee as a sign of honor. His, he's given his life's calling, the job that would define his life. And he wastes little time getting to work. Getting to work. As his first act, Joseph, it says, just went through all the land of Egypt in verse 46. He goes on a tour to inspect all the land that he is now given authority over. He needed to familiarize himself with all who managed, with those who managed the agriculture, the locations and conditions of the fields, the crops, the roads. What kind of transportation would there be to fulfill this mandate? How would he accomplish something of this magnitude? To do that, he likely had to establish and oversee the training of what would amount to a department of agriculture and revenue. I feel like I need to point this out, that this solution to the famine that was predicted by Pharaoh's dreams was increased taxation, a taxation which would take and store 20% of the good harvests. Then when the famine came, the government would have the resources to meet the needs of the people. And I point this out because recently I've heard of a state senator who claims that income tax and property taxes are a violation of several of the Ten Commandments. And that would be interesting since in Scripture we see several places where God actually gives wisdom to tax the people so that the government can flourish and run appropriately can meet the needs of the people that it governs. While we often think of government in less than flattering ways, including often seeing government as a necessary evil, God says otherwise. God says He is the one who appoints governments. Governments are not merely to provide the right environments for people to flourish, protection and the restraint of evil, but also to provide for the welfare and good of its people, including those who are in need. Now, to what extent and how much government is needed, we can have different opinions on that, but we need government for our good. And while establishing this government department, his office would have required that he learn about legislation, communication, negotiation, transportation, safe and efficient modes of food storage, building, economic strategizing, record-keeping, payroll, handling of transactions through currency and through bartering, human resources, acquiring real estate. Joseph's access, success was found in the effectiveness of his integrating the gifts that God had given him, the acquired competencies that he had, and also building out this government system. For Joseph, all of this was godly work. 
just as we pointed out last week, our vocations are integral to our Christian discipleship. They are integral to how we provide for ourselves, but also how we serve others, how we serve the common good. Our vocations are ways in which we bring God's goodness to others, just as we see in the life of Joseph. Right? His whole calling at this point, as the second-ranking official of Egypt, is now to bring good to the people of Egypt, even if they don't know that they need this good. Right? You know how this works. Can you imagine Pharaoh, through Joseph, instituting a 20% tax on the bounty that people had grown on their own fields? Are you crazy? This is mine. I need this. I've developed it. I've grown it. We have so much here where it's plentiful. We don't need to worry about what's to come. And yet, Joseph is given this task by God through Pharaoh to seek the good of others, to literally, as the text will say, to save the world from starvation. Not only do we see the Lord is with Joseph in his vocation, but the Lord is with Joseph as he begins to establish his life in Egypt and growing his own family. This begins with a new name given by Pharaoh. Notice that when Pharaoh gives Joseph a new name, he doesn't object. He doesn't stand up, so to speak, for God and refuse his new name. As we'll see, names are very important. And while his new name likely meant God lives and sees, it's given by a pagan who doesn't know the one true God, Yahweh. By giving him this new name, it's in a sense stripping Joseph of his family and religious identity. Yet he doesn't object. But we know that Joseph hasn't backed down from serving and following the one true God. He's already shared where his wisdom comes from, who rules the world even over Pharaoh. Right? Joseph has not stepped back from giving glory to God, to the one who provides his gifting, his ability. But we know that Joseph hasn't backed down from serving and following the one true God. But Joseph wisely discerns what is most important in terms of honoring and serving the one true God. It's giving glory to God for his gifts and abilities and directing Pharaoh to the one who has ultimate authority to make his dreams come true. We often, I think, get this backwards. We often take offense at ways that, quote, dishonor God, similar to something like a name change. Yet we are slow to give God glory for the things that matter most or direct others to the one who has ultimate authority. We often major in the minors and minor in the majors. And so we see that Joseph understands that his calling, what God has done, who God is, is ultimately more important. 
than something like his name being changed and losing and stripping some of his family and religious identity. Pharaoh also gives Joseph an Egyptian wife, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, and the Lord blesses them with children. Joseph names his firstborn Manasseh. It says, the text says, because God has made me forget all of my hardship and all my father's house in verse 51. And he named the second Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction in verse 52. We certainly can understand why Joseph would want to forget his sufferings. But naming your sons this way is a sure way to make sure that you remember. <laughs> Every time you call their name, you are remembering your sufferings. You're remembering your affliction. Calling his son Manasseh actually made sure that he would never forget. That he would always remember his forgetting. <laughs> How can you constantly remember what you have forgotten? We're given different perspectives on what it actually means to forget these painful memories. Maybe you know the reality of events that you simply can't forget. These may be terrible sins that other people have committed against you or your own sin and wrong decisions that might haunt you. And these painful memories from your past continue to affect the way that you respond to events and situations in the present. You view people and relationships around you in the present through the lens of those intensely painful events from your past. Maybe you or maybe even others in your life might think you should simply put these events behind you and move on. But how do you, quote, get over such terrible trauma. How can you forget? You can't simply wipe the past from your memory in an act of the will as hard as many of us might try. What Joseph did by naming his son Manasseh was to reshape the significance of the past by putting into context of what God was doing in the present in his life. His son became a permanent testimony to God's power to redeem the past. Of course, Joseph could never completely forget his experiences of trauma they experienced in and through his family, in and through being sold into slavery, through his time in prison. Of course, he would never forget that. But from now on, he would remember that through the experience of God's presence with him, with him in his pain, in God's faithfulness and ultimately bringing him through that suffering. The prophet Joel will centuries later describe the Lord fulfilling his promises in this way. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. In Joel 2.25. God gave Joseph the grace to put his past hardships and sufferings into a new redemptive context. The marks of the wounds remained in his life and could never be forgotten. But those scars were evidence of God's grace in his life, and Joseph would not forget it. It is the same for us. We don't simply forget an experience of life-changing suffering. We can't. We shouldn't. 
the scars will mark us indelibly for the rest of our lives. But God takes those scars and by his grace reshapes them, heals them. The Lord can overwhelm the painful memories of our past with the wonderful memory of his greater faithfulness and grace in the midst of all our pain and with the assurance that he will bring about good. How does this reshaping of our painful memories happen? Well, the name that Joseph gives to his second son, Ephraim, is a clue in the text. Joseph explains, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Right? God doesn't promise to deliver us out of the land of our affliction. Though that is what we continually pray for, what we usually desire more than anything. I'm sure that Joseph prayed repeatedly that God would somehow get him out of this and send him back to the land that he came from, to the promised land, to his family as messed up as it was was, to see his father and his mother again. But that doesn't happen. That's how Joseph imagined being fruitful. I'm sure of it. But he begins to realize that the Lord has made him fruitful in the land of his affliction in Egypt, where God used him to be a blessing to those around him, ultimately saving many from famine and death. In the same way, it is often in the land of our affliction that the Lord makes us fruitful. In, our, in ourselves and in the lives of others around us. Remember from our time in First Peter last fall that as we await the coming of Christ, we, to make all things new, we live in the land of our affliction. While we're called to, like Joseph, to work for hope, renewal, and restoration, that work does not fulfill it totally and what only Christ can do when he comes again. So no matter the good we experience or help we secure or the, uh, the hope that we secure in this life, we are still to some extent living in the land of our affliction. We will experience pain, heartache, and sorrow in our work, in our relationships, in all aspects of our lives. It will never be how it was meant to be until Jesus comes to make it how it was meant to be. We will experience glimpses and tastes of that, but it will never be how it was meant to be until Jesus comes to make it how it was meant to be. Just think about Joseph himself. He's fruitful in the land of his affliction. The people of Israel become fruitful in this land. They become so fruitful that a Pharaoh that did not know Joseph, we'll read, enslaves them. And this land becomes a land of affliction once again. It becomes a land of affliction for 400 years until God, through the prophet Moses, brings them out of their affliction. 
we live in that same experience where we experience fruitfulness in the land of our affliction and that land will continue to be an affliction in some form or fashion until Christ comes again. Right, Joseph points forward to that time, points forward to Christ, the one who followed the same pattern of suffering, was exalted in public acclamation. Jesus was not merely second in line behind the king. He was and is the king of kings and Lord of lords, the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. He is the one before whom all nations will bow, who will learn obedience through what, who he learned obedience through what he suffered and became fruitful precisely through his afflictions as his suffering on the cross brings us life and health and peace. Jesus, Joseph bore the scars of his suffering. They weren't likely external scars, but they were emotional, mental, maybe even spiritual scars that he bore. Like many of us bear those same scars. Isn't it amazing that Jesus' resurrected and glorified body still bears the scars of his suffering? Eternity will not erase the scars of suffering that our Savior took upon himself for us. The nail prints in his hands, the wound in his side, the lashes on his back. Those wounds, those scars were not healed at the resurrection. Why wouldn't the Father heal and restore his body because those scars speak. Those scars are made beautiful by the fruit that they bear for God's redemptive purposes. Jesus will never forget the cross and the profound sufferings at the hands of his brothers. But neither will he forget the fruit born from that suffering a new family of men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation who now receive new life because of the scars that he received. God made that terrible affliction bear incredible fruit. And those incredible scars now speak permanently of indelible grace. Because Jesus has borne the scars of suffering, we can be fruitful in the land of our affliction.
we will live and die in the land of our affliction like Joseph. And yet, the Lord has promised good to you and me. He has promised that we too are fruitful in the land of our affliction because Jesus bore the scars of suffering. We are fruitful in the land of our affliction. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. And because of Jesus, we are fruitful. Even in the land of our affliction. Lord, that the afflictions of this life do not erase the goodness of your grace. Do not nullify the fruitfulness that comes through you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that fruitfulness in our lives, in our work, in our family, in our recreation, in our churches. Lord, in every sphere of our life, we pray that you would help us to see and to know the fruitfulness that we have in Christ, even in the midst of a world that is not the way it is supposed to be, even in the midst of the affliction that we experience. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.